This is hell. Greetings, listeners. So glad you're able to join us this morning. This is board operator Dan talking at you at the top of the hour. Precisely because Chuck is out. He's resting. He's relaxing. He's uh, getting ready to come back, though, very soon. He'll be back in next week, in fact. And our long flirtation with the liminal space of limbo will finally be at an end. It does look like the skeleton crew here has cooked up a question from hell. I'll share it with you presently. What ego trip are you going on that could trigger World War III? What ego trip are you going on that could trigger World War III? If you don't know what the question from hell is, it's where we ask a question and then you answer on Facebook, and if uh, you do well, we give you a prize. Uh, World War III, that sort of reminds me of the long-running comic book zine World War III Illustrated. It's a little more fun to keep that in your apartment than to actually sit down and read that cover to cover. Just this reporter's opinion. It's sometimes the case. If you have an answer to this week's question from hell, I encourage you to dial up facebook.com slash thisishellradio on your device of choice. Find a little, find a little post you know, with uh, that question from hell and then comment under it. Or do likewise on twitter.com slash thisishellradio. That would work equally well. I'll select a winner at the end of today's show, and the winner will get their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. That's merchandise. It sticks in Jeffrey Dorchin's craw when you say merchandise, which he says is only for the verb. I'll bet that's probably right. I haven't looked it up. All right. Gaza is sadly in the news again. On Friday, Israel once again began bombing there. Hundreds were injured. 45 Palestinians were killed, including 16 children. Friday's attack came at a time in which many Palestinians were still rebuilding their homes and businesses from last year's 11-day war that left 260 people in Gaza dead. Israel's fighting an ongoing, morally depraved war against the indigenous people of Palestine. The government of the United States is hugely complicit in this war due to its incessant stream of military funding that it provides uh, to underwrite it. In light of these events, it seems appropriate to spend the morning playing some classic This Is Hell interviews on the topic. I have two different Normal Finkelstein, Norman Finkelstein interviews lined up from 2005 and 2015. That's 10 years apart. When Chuck conducts this first interview in 2005, Dr. Finkelstein was still an, an associate professor here at DePaul University and had just published Beyond Chutzpah on the misuse of anti-Semitism and abuse of history. So let's turn to that interview right now. On the line right now, Norman Finkelstein. He is author of Beyond Chutzpah uh, on the misuse of anti-Semitism and the abuse of history. He is assistant professor of political science at Chicago's DePaul University. Good morning, Norman. Hi, how are you? Am I pronouncing your name and giving you everything? Is that all accurate? You're still assistant professor at uh, DePaul University, and it is Finkelstein, correct? 
That's correct. If you just hold on one second, I'm going to switch phones to a better phone. Hold okay. on for one second. Uh, and uh, so also coming up on this morning's show, we're going to be speaking with author Barbara Ehrenreich, and we're also speaking with Jamie Court. Jamie Court is going okay, to talk I'm to us. fine. Okay. Uh, Norman, uh, I, I have to admit, when covering this topic, whenever I have done it in the, par- in the past, uh, we this is a, a, a you know, when you're talking about being uh, critical of Israeli policy, uh, you know, it doesn't matter who I've talked with on this show or what aspect of being critical of uh, Israeli governmental policy or being critical of the Sharon administration. I'm always a little bit nervous. I'm always kind of uncomfortable with using the words, you know, and I know this is just words, but using the words like Jew and Zionist, both from someone, you know, because I'm not Jewish. Uh, I was raised, uh, I was raised Roman Catholic. I'm white. Uh, So is there some kind of like... Is this kind of white liberal Christian guilt? Is it commonplace? And is this part of the reason that criticism of Israeli policy is not open for discussion within the public because of the, even the fear of using words like Zionist within conversation? Well, I think that you point to an interesting problem, and nobody has ever asked me that question, so I think this is a good opportunity to explore it. I think the uh, best way to go about these things is simply not to use those terms. I don't think being a Jew or being a Zionist has any relevance, whatever, in trying to examine Israeli policy. Israel is a, Israel is a state, and it's bound by the same rights and responsibilities as any other state in the world. And Israel has citizens, some of whom are, uh, most of whom are Jewish, but a large number of whom are not Jewish. So raising the issue of Jew also, to my thinking, is irrelevant. The question is whether Israel is uh, acting in a manner that conforms to international law. That's the only relevant question. Jew, Zionist, those are interesting questions. I wrote a doctoral dissertation on the theory of Zionism, and I found that topic interesting. That's an area of you know, intellectual exploration. It has nothing whatever to do with applying to Israel the same uh, standards as you apply to any other country in the world. Uh, and Norman, when I just started doing this show, I was approached by someone who is Jewish in the Peace Activism Network here in Chicago, and they wanted me not to do anything on the show that would, or they warned me, I should say, not to do anything on the show that was critical of Israeli policy. This activist told me that I should, quote, be careful about criticizing Israeli policy, end quote, because knee-jerk supporters of Israeli government policy can cause a lot of trouble for those who criticize Israel. Now, that hasn't stopped us from allowing this program to be an open forum for those who are critical of Israeli policy, whether it's Mordecai Venunu, Mustafa Barghouti, Uri of Neri, the parents of Rachel Corey, former members of the Israeli military, or folks from the number of Jewish peace and human rights organizations within Israel or Arab peace and uh, human rights groups within uh, Palestine. Well, I have to just stop you and say that's a terrific lineup. Uh, Rachel Corey's parents have met them on several occasions. They're really wonderful human beings. Mustafa Barghouti is a terrific and very smart fellow. Uh, I think you should uh, feel very proud that you brought some exemplary uh, human beings onto your radio program. They're tremendous. I have to say one of the most inspiring people I've ever met was uh, Rachel Corey's mother, Cindy Corey. She's a real trooper.
And you know what? Uh, it's just uh, on Mustafa Barghouti. I, I think that that uh, his opinions and his views of uh, what the future of Palestine can be uh, are unfortunately uh, views on the future of Palestine. They're being completely ignored here in the United States as far as a different way for the Palestinian people to go forward rather than embracing something like Hamas or Islam I, Jihad. I totally agree with you, and he happens to be a very intelligent person. And that's why those on the other side don't want him to be seen. They want it look like Israel is just facing a bunch of irrational, fanatical terrorists. And when you have someone like Dr. Barghouti on the program, it uh, causes one to rethink those stereotypes. He's perfectly rational, very intelligent, and very reasonable. So my question is, uh, what, was it anti-Semitic for s- someone, despite being Jewish, uh, to warn me about the power of pro-Israeli government organizations in Chicago? Or was the power of pro-Israeli er, government organizations uh, simply over-exaggerated by the No, activists? I think that's a real phenomenon. I'm right now trying to get onto a Chicago television program out of deference to the producer. I won't name the program. I was originally invited to be on enthusiastically, and uh, as always happens, so I don't fault this producer at all, uh, I'm told I'll be on imminently. Days elapse. I'm not on, so I call up curious what happened, but knowing full well what happened, I'm told I'm controversial. And because I'm controversial, that is, I don't tell the party line on Israel, Because I'm controversial, they have to have on somebody who will represent the other view, to which I say, fine, that's terrific, bring the person on. Nothing happens for several days, I call up again, so what's the story? Well, nobody wants to appear with you from the other side. And therefore, the other side effectively has a veto on all dissenting voices, because they simply say, he's controversial, he can't be on alone, but we won't appear with him. And then the uh, radio station, the television program, uh, they say, well, sorry, but we can't let you on alone. You can't be on. Uh, and uh, I've had that happen so many times. It's already, you know, I, I still feel, it still fills me with a, mis- a mixture of bitterness and frustration. But I can't say it comes as a surprise to me. Uh, that's how the other side works. They know perfectly well if they pigeonhole you as controversial, then the station feels the obligation to have the alternative point of view, and uh, you never get on, because then they say they won't come on. Uh, and the funny thing, the irony of all of it is, in fact, by any rational standard, I'm not controversial at all. I got my degrees, my uh, uh, graduate-level degrees from Princeton. I've written five books, one of which was named the Notable Book of the Year by the Sunday New York Times Book Review. Another one of my books has been translated into 19 languages and has, was an international bestseller. Uh, I'm, and uh, if you look at my recent book, the one that just came out, Beyond Chutzpah, which is supposedly the most controversial of all, if you just turn to the back cover, you'll see blurbs praising the book from the chair of the department at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, from Oxford University, from Harvard University, from Berkeley, and from um, MIT. 
And as it happens, all of the persons endorsing the book are Jewish. But notwithstanding, the book came out from a university press. All of the endorsers are Jewish. All of the endorsers are the leading scholars in the field at their respective leading universities in the world. Hebrew University, Oxford, Harvard, MIT. Notwithstanding all of that, I'm the one that's deemed controversial. Whereas one of the main subjects of my book, namely Alan Dershowitz of Harvard, um, Professor Dershowitz has written what I claim and I ex- extensively document to be a fraud. He plagiarizes from a hoax. And Professor Dershowitz went as far as the governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to try to block publication of my book, this coming from a renowned civil libertarian. Nonetheless, Professor Dershowitz is never deemed controversial. If he wanted to appear on a television program in Chicago, there would never be the standard that an alternative point of view has to be presented. Professor Dershowitz last week had a large op-ed piece in the Chicago Tribune. Was there any standard that uh, Dershowitz had to have, that there had to be a dissenting view on the same page? I submitted an op-ed to the Chicago Tribune. I'm still waiting to hear, but I, I have a very good idea what the answer is. Uh, uh, Norman, you know, uh, this uh, it made me think about how we have had uh, people on our show in the past who have said that, you know, the uh, public forum, as far as being critical of Israeli policy, is far more vigorous. There's far more criticism of Israeli governmental policy, of, of the policies of the Sharon administration in particular, within the Israeli media than there is with, within the media here in the United States. And I, and I don't, I know that there are probably some people who are listening to the show right now who think that your opinions, your criticism of Israeli policy uh, are not being put on the air here in the United States because of this hateful remark that I've heard so many people say that the Jews control the media. So why do you think that there is, and first of all, do you think that there is a more vigorous debate within the Israeli media? And secondly, why do you think you are not allowed or uh, as invited on to, into the uh, mainstream media here in the United States to discuss your criticism of Israeli foreign policy, or policy in general? There's probably more range of debate. There was probably more range of debate on Israeli policy in the settlements in Gaza than there is in the United States. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, this place is pretty monotonal. It's really a Johnny One note on the question of Israel. Who can be a bigger cheerleader than the next? Uh, so uh, I think to talk about the range of debate when it comes to the United States, it's just, it's just uh, you're on another planet. Let me just give you a simple example. In any other country in the world where there are human rights violations, the standard procedure is you go to mainstream human rights organizations and you ask them, what's going on in Indonesia? You ask Human Rights Watch. Mm-hmm. What's going on in Colombia? You ask Amnesty International. That's the standard. You go to the human rights organizations, and then you also, of course, go 
to the reputable local human rights organizations in those countries. But that standard is completely ignored when you come to Israel and the Palestinians. You'll never hear what Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch have to say in the topic, or the local human rights organizations. One illustration. For two weeks, the media was bombarding us with all of these images of Israel withdrawing anguishly, withdrawing from Gaza, and making a major concession uh, towards ending the conflict. And as you perhaps know, yesterday Sharon said, we have withdrawn from Gaza at the United Nations. We have withdrawn from Gaza, and now it's time for the uh, Palestinians to make a major concession. However, just go to any human rights organization and see what they wrote. On August 19th, Human Rights Watch issued a statement. It's the title of the statement means, said, disengagement does not mean the end of occupation. And it stated that if you take, I'm now giving you the paraphrase, if you take jailers and you remove them from inside the prison and put them on the periphery of the prison, and the jailers have all control over who goes in, who goes out, and the case of Gaza, the airspace, and the coastline, they say it's still a jail. Nothing has changed from the point of view of international law. All that happened was the jailers threw the keys into the cells, told the inmates they're now free to walk around inside the jail, but we're shutting tight the gates of the jail. Nothing changed under international law. Go to Bet Selim, the Israeli Information Center for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories. It, it's the main human rights organization in Israel monitoring human rights in the West Bank and Gaza. It put out a huge report entitled, appropriately enough, One Big Prison About Gaza. And it, made, it reached the same conclusion, that so long as Israel controls all of the entry and exit, the movement of goods and people, under international law, they said, the claim that the occupation is over is questionable. Now, I wonder if any of your listeners, even one, had heard that point of view. Is that an extremist point of view? Is that Hamas's point of view? Is that Gaddafi's point of view? Is that Iran's point of view? No. It's the point of view of completely mainstream, reputable, authoritative human rights organizations. But in the American media, it's a complete taboo. You can't hear it. My latest book, if you skim through it and just look at the bottom of the page, because we decided to use footnotes instead of endnotes, right. what you're going to find is all I cite, all I cite are mainstream human rights organizations, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, B'Tselem, the Public Committee Against Torture in Israel, Physicians for Human Rights in Israel. That's all I cite. Is that controversial? Yes, in the United States. But anywhere else, 
it's not considered controversial. And what's more, on any other place in the world, it wouldn't be considered controversial. But when it comes to Israel and the Palestinians, you are not allowed to cite mainstream sources. All you're allowed to do is the following. You're allowed to say, the Israeli government says X, the Palestinians say Y. Who knows where the truth is? But we don't use that standard anywhere else. We go to the reputable monitoring groups to find out what's going on. But here we can't do that, and there's a very simple reason. Because what, what they say is going on is very much at variance with what our media want to report is going on. Well, why, that's, why is it a taboo? Why does the media not want to report on this issue? I mean, this isn't the only issue that the media does not uh, have a public forum about. There are other issues, but uh, and, and not very many. And it's certainly not to the degree of uh, criticism of Israeli uh, policy. Uh, so, and especially Israeli policy, not just internally or domestically, but Israeli policy towards the occupied territories. So why is it? Well, that- I think it's a common combination of things is, you know, two elements, and depending on your analysis of it, you attach more weight to one or the other. I can't tell you which is the more important element, but the two elements are clearly that U.S. uh, uh, Israel is a strategic asset of the U.S. in the Middle East, and accordingly, it enjoys the same sorts of immunities to criticism as American policy generally does. It will come no surprise as to your listeners to hear that the American media generally uh, are supportive of U.S. government policy, regardless of who happens to be in office. Whether that's right or not, I'm not going to judge, but I think it's a fact that anybody, you know, ra- uh, any rational person is going to recognize. And then there's the second uh, component, and the second p- component is a powerful lobby, which uh, can do real damage to those who... Um, uh, buck the lobby. Uh, I don't think anybody disputes that. And frankly, in many instances, the lobby itself boasts about its power. Nobody would deny, for example, the power of the National Rifle Association. They would say, yes, it's a powerful lobby. Right. Uh, and so why should we be shy from saying, especially when the Israel lobby boasts itself about its power, why should we be shy from simply echoing their boast and saying, yes, they have profound powers of intimidation, uh, they have lots of money, lots of political clout, and people are afraid of them. And they're, uh, we should be honest, they're also very well organized. Uh, after having me on the program, you're going to be deluged with letters. <laughs> you know, uh, that's not going to be a surprise. Uh, and you'll be deluged with a criticism, and they're going to say, How can you have that Holocaust denier on your program? Never mind that my late mother and late father passed through the Nazi Holocaust. Never mind that they were in the Warsaw Ghetto from 1939 to 1943. Never mind that my mother was in Maidanic concentration camp and two slave labor camps. Never mind that my father was in Auschwitz in the Auschwitz Death March. Never mind that every single member of my family was exterminated on both sides. That doesn't stop these people. 
you will see you will get a deluge of calls and emails stating that you had a Holocaust denier on your program. And if there's any doubt, they're going to say, go to the Internet. Look at what Professor Dershowitz has to say <laughs> in the subject of Harvard University, the Felix Frankfurter Chair of Harvard. He's even written that Finkelstein thinks his mother was a Nazi collaborator. That's what Dershowitz writes. Never mind that that's a complete fraud. And Professor Dershowitz is a very ill liar. Uh, that's all irrelevant. Uh, that's how they work. There are, you know, they take off the kid gloves. This is, you know, taking out the um, um, uh, taking out the wrench and breaking your kneecaps. Uh, that's their style. You, the name of your book, again, we're speaking with uh, Norman Finkelstein. He is author of Beyond Chutzpah on the uh, misuse of anti-Semitism and the abuse of history. He is assistant professor of political science at Chicago's DePaul University uh, and uh, a really good friend of mine uh, who I was mentioning earlier on this morning's show, and he's going to be one of our uh, contributing correspondents in the very near future, Danny Muller, who used to work for Voice in the Wilderness. Uh, he uh, said that you are uh, – these are his exact words – he said that he wants to have your baby, if that's actually biologically possible. <laughs> so, uh, Norman, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, one of the things that, uh, it, it, that, that I, I got to admit that I am uh, not concerned about your criticism, but that I am concerned about uh, about the concept of uh anti-Semitism, uh, is you talk about how people who are pro-Israeli government, people who are completely uncritical of the Israeli government, who are knee-jerk supporters, uh, no matter what uh, the policies of the Israeli government are, uh, you say that they uh, exploit anti-Semitism in order to deflect criticism from the Israeli government. Uh, but because you're talking about the exploitation of uh, anti-Semitism, I think that People imply from that that you either don't believe that anti-Semitism exists or that they imply from that the fact that you are critical of uh, or you're saying that anti-Semitism is being exploited for some political reasons, that there would be the underestimation of the impact of anti-Semitism within this country or around the world. Uh, are, are you concerned when you uh, are critical of the use of anti-Semitism, Semitism, the, uh, the exploitation by those who support the Israeli government in order, as you say, to deflect criticism from the Israeli government, that it could lead to uh, people ignoring actual acts of anti-Semitism and actual bigotry and hatred against <clears throat> Jews. I think just the reverse is true. The fact of the matter is, when you keep crying anti-Semitism in the face of its absence, and you keep labeling critics of Israel legitimate critics of Israel and Israeli policy as anti-Semitic, you're cheapening the currency. And that's why the chapter three of my book is entitled Crying Wolf. Mm -hmm. Crying Wolf doesn't mean that there is no wolf out there. Crying Wolf, uh, I mean, actually I had a, a debate with my editor whether to call the third chapter, the one on anti-Semitism, it's alleged anti new anti-Semitism in the U.S., whether to call it crying wolf or the sky isn't falling. <laughs> uh, the Henny Penny story, for those right. of you who remember the children's story. 
And she said, no, we should call it crying wolf because we're not denying the phenomenon is, exists, but we're talking about the fact that people keep claiming it's uh, in instances where it's not there. Right. It's just legitimate criticism of Israeli policy. But everybody knows from the story crying wolf what happens when the real wolf comes along. And that's why one has to be rational and careful uh, and circumspect and cautious in using terms like that, because not only is it morally irresponsible to fling that label on people who only want to abide by international law and the human rights of all people in the area, not only is it morally irresponsible, but it's politically reckless, because you cheapen the currency, and if and when that phenomenon does resurface, you won't be taken seriously. Uh, you also write in uh, Beyond Hutzpah that, quote, allegations of new anti-Semitism is neither new nor uh, new or about anti-Semitism. It's not to fight anti-Semitism, but rather to exploit the historical suffering of Jews in order to immunize Israel against criticism. In And in, in that's uh, where, your quote, where your quote ends. But in a sense, it's like playing the anti-Semitism card. But the right, the right wing in this country, has been able to effectively dismiss the question of race by saying stuff like, there you go again, playing the race card. So why isn't that considered racist? But if someone said, there you go, playing the anti-Semitic card again, that would be considered anti-Semitic. Well, I think that's a very fair question. And then you have to judge in each individual case whether we're dealing with a real phenomenon or we're dealing with its exploitation. Let's take the case of Clarence Thomas. When he went through the Senate hearings for his confirmation, he said that what he was undergoing was a high-tech lynching. And he was, uh, I think it was fair in that circumstance to say he was playing the race card because he was coming under legitimate criticism and, and, real, and real issues were being raised about his conduct in the past. It wasn't race. It was whether or not he was being candid about claims that were being alleged against him. But he decided to drag in the issue of lynchings and the South. Okay, in that case, I would say he was playing the race card. In general, if you were to ask me whether black people who claim they face discrimination in the United States in all walks of American life are playing the race card, I would say flat out no. I live in the real world. I know the racism all around me, and frankly, to be perfectly candid, I know the racism within me, not just around me. So I'm not going to pretend as if it's not an issue, and it's an issue that blacks have to face in every, uh, uh, every area of life, and most significantly in the areas of employment and education which are the ones which affect most your right of opportunity. Now let's turn to the, Jew, the Jews in the United States. Do Jews in the United States face significant or even trivial obstacles any longer in education or employment? Are law firms any longer not employing Jews? Is the medical field in any way closed to Jews? Is university life 
closed any longer to Jews? Yes, there was a time when it certainly was the case. But would anyone in his or her right mind say that Harvard is closed to Jews? Or Princeton is closed to Jews? Or the faculties are closed to Jews? That's nonsense. And so we have to have a realistic assessment of the condition of Jews in the United States now. You know, you read, for example, the current editor of Commentary Magazine, the main Jewish periodical. His name is Gabriel Schoenfeld. Mm -hmm. And Gabriel Schoenfeld wrote a book a year ago. It was called The Return of Anti-Semitism. And he begins in a very portentous note. He says, quote, Jews in the United States are targeted for murder. Does that sound like the United States you live in? I don't walk out of my house with a bulletproof vest. I'm not looking over my shoulder for snipers and pogromists. Does this have anything, any bearing on the real world in which you, I, and your listeners live? No. But if you were to say to me, black people face discrimination in the United States, and there's a lot of racism in the United States, that sounds like the world in which I live. So the question is not whether or not you have the right to use those labels. The question is whether they're being appropriately used. We're speaking with uh, Norman Finkelstein. He is author of Beyond Chutzpah on the misuse of anti-Semitism and the abuse of history. He is also assistant professor of political science at Chicago's DePaul University. Just two more questions for you, mm-hmm. Norman. And uh, speaking of your role as assistant professor uh, at DePaul University, uh, you recently have been attacked for your viewpoints in a way that threatened, I believe, your advancement within your academic career. And we touched on David Horowitz's frightening academic bill of rights that would basically bring lawyers into the classroom so students could file grievances against any perceived uh, liberal bias in universities. And, you know, this could lead to all sorts of problems. But uh, it's surprising that from conservatives who are so anti-lawyer and, you know, that they would conceive, uh, would would embrace a concept that would bring lawyers into the classroom. You write about uh, these threats to academic freedom uh, using a case of uh, Columbia, using the case of... uh, Columbia University, Mm -hmm. where there was a perceived anti-Semitic bias. And you say that, quote, the real revelation of the Columbia episode was not that the claim of anti-Semitism was a fraud, but how de facto agents of a foreign government have, in service to their holy state, conspired to muzzle academic freedom in the United States. Mm -hmm. If the Academic Bill of Rights is agreed to by universities here in the United States universally, Will criticism of Israeli government policy, even of Sharon administration policy, be stricken from all curriculum? I don't really know the details of the Academic Bill of Rights. What I can tell you is, well short of the Academic Bill of Rights, it is, uh, you know, university life is already quite carefully, maybe for better or for worse, I don't want to pass judgment, but it is quite carefully policed. Uh, the notion that a professor can say whatever he or she wants in a classroom is just sheer nonsense. Careful uh, professors, I'm speaking now in the social studies, not the natural sciences, uh, they're very careful about what they say in the classroom because they're fully aware that all sorts of grievances uh, can be filed uh, against them uh, for the things they say. So this notion that you need an additional policing of the classroom, I think comes from people who have no concept 
of what uh, classroom life uh, classroom life is uh, like right now. Uh, there, there, you know, I don't think it's incorrect to say that there is a kind of reign of uh, political correctness, uh, and that political correctness ex- extends, you know, across the spectrum. It's not just being sensitive to the concerns of uh, of uh, minorities and women and so forth. For example, I often think twice and three times before, and I don't mean just at DePaul University, even at secular universities where I've taught, about saying to the class that I'm an atheist. Uh, you know, and when I was growing up, I'm now 52, when I grew up, being an atheist was almost what everyone was. But somehow, some way, our, you know, our culture has changed, and being an atheist is now the same as one saying you're a communist. Right. And I think twice and three times about saying it, and you know, people claiming they're offended by it. Uh, so I think already we are uh, pretty politically correct. And I teach, uh, DePaul is the first university uh, in my entire teaching career that's allowed me to teach the Israel-Palestine conflict. I'm very careful about what I teach. You know, the Internet is a quite powerful weapon. And so they'll have up right away on the Internet, the other side will have up right away your reading list and to try to show there are biases in the books that you read. Now, this is without any academic bill of rights. And, uh, you know, if they can demonstrate a bias in your reading list, that's going to be a problem for you. The chair will call you down on it, and complaints will be filed. So I think there's a certain amount of maybe it's malicious naivete, and maybe it's an unwitting naivete, I don't know, but there's a certain amount of naivete by those who claim that right now it's pretty much a free-for-all where a professor can say whatever he or she wants. Uh, that's not what the classroom looks like now. Uh, Norman, one last question for you. We've been speaking with Norman Finkelstein. He is author of Beyond Hutzpah on the Misuse of Anti-Semitism and the Abuse of History. It's printed on University of California Press, and if you go to our website, thisishell.net, you click on the University of California Press uh, uh, link that we have at our website. It'll take you to their website, and you can uh, purchase the book directly through the website at, uh, the, at his publisher. Uh, one last question, Norman. Uh, it's what we call our uh, question from hell. It's a question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Who knows how this is going to work out? One of the things that I have seen within, as you point out in your book, within the judicial system, within the justice system of Israel, is uh, what amounts to... Uh, kind of a reflection of a culture of fear within Israel, a fear that this that the country of Israel will end, that, that is, Israelis will be pushed to the sea. We see it here in the United States, a culture of fear that the, that the Bush administration embraces. To, uh, and by embracing this culture of fear, you lead people to thinking that we're going to be attacked at any time and that we're willing to give up our freedoms in order to uh, make sure that we don't have have another 9-11. But uh, you write that, uh, with, well, with Dershowitz supporting the infringement of so many freedoms, and this isn't what your quote of yours, but I, with Dershowitz su- uh, supporting the infringement of so many different freedoms, uh, supporting the idea of torture, the idea of hostage-taking, the stifling of political dissent, the oppression of the perceived enemies of the state and those who live, in, in, in the case of Israel, uh, within the occupied territories, you write that, quote, Dershowitz has not made a case for
for Israel. How could anyone genuinely concerned about the Israeli people counsel policies certain to sow seeds of hatred abroad and moral corruption within? What he has in fact written is the case for the destruction of Israel. But what you call the tough Jew stance would presumably be that of a constant aggressor. Of a, I mean, as far as what would happen in Israel if Dershowitz had his way, of a constant aggressor, of a militarized, freedom-deprived state all in the name of the fear of terrorism and actual terrorism as well. So even under this twisted view of the future of Israel, uh, are, are you feeding, first of all, is the destruction of Israel actually a possibility if the Dershowitz plan is, follow, uh, is being followed? And are you feeding the same fear of a destruction of the state of uh, Israel in, in essence, but from a different direction that Dershowitz is? Well, let's start from scratch. Okay. Jews are a very, very, very tiny minority of the world's population, maybe point zero 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 one of the world's population. And when you're such a tiny, tiny percentage of the world's population, it's not a wise thing to make enemies of everybody around you, not just in your region, but around the world. Right. And it's not a wise thing to link all your fortunes with one country uh, when that one country acts on its own interests, which may at this moment coincide with yours, but tomorrow may not. Uh, but that's basically what Israel has done. It's thumbed its nose, not just at all the Arab regimes in the, in the Middle East, but it's thumbed its nose at the whole world. It goes about its business, ignores all United Nations resolutions, ignores the International Court of Justice, ignores human rights organizations, and it does so for one simple reason, because it has the impunity of being connected or linked with the United States. That's not a wise thing for any country to do. Uh, first of all, because it's not a wise thing to alienate everyone around you and become the hated neighbor. And number two, it's not wise because you can't always count on this particular big brother. Uh, this, brother, this big brother has at its head of st- as its executives uh, people who are quite ruthless, very ruthless, and act on their interests. And one day, that very, very thin, uh, uh, thin cord connecting you with uh, the, your, uh, the United States may be cut. So I don't think it's a, a, a wise, uh, it's not uh, morally, it's totally wrong. And I would say politically, it's not very prudent, the kind of strategy that Israel is pursuing. In the case of people like Dershowitz, I don't think he cares about Israel. For, for him, it's all theater. He gets to act out this role of the Jew with chutzpah by putting forth these policies like uh, torture, supporting, as he calls it, quote, the automatic destruction of a Palestinian village after every terrorist attack. Uh, he's putting forth these Nazi-like policies uh, because it gets, enables him to play a kind of role, the role you mentioned, I think, accurately a moment ago, he gets to play the role of the tough Jew. But that Jew is t- that, that role is totally independent of and uncaring of the Israelis. It's a role that suits him and the image that he wants to project. The Jew who doesn't uh, give a damn what the Goyim think. Uh, that's the, the Goyim meaning non-Jews. Right. That's the image he wants to pro- uh, project. 
but it has nothing to do with Israel, and it has nothing to do uh, with caring about those people. How could anyone, as I say at the end of that, uh, at the end of the book, the passage you quote, how can anyone who cares about the fate of the Israeli people constantly be counseling policies which are just creating hatred? He goes beyond, incidentally, just counseling policies. There were some courageous Israeli dissenters who said they refused to launch missiles into Palestinian neighborhoods anymore, what was going on during what was called the Second Intifada, when the Apache helicopters were launching missiles. And there were several courageous Israeli members of the Air Force who issued a public statement saying that they won't do it anymore. It's in violation of international law, and it's completely immoral. You're targeting civilians in neighborhoods. Well, we know what Professor Dershowitz did, the great civil libertarian. He went on a special mission to Israel to consult with the Israeli government about how we can combat and restrict the influence of this dissent. Now, isn't that a paradox? Isn't it a paradox when Israelis show the courage to dissent from policies which are clearly immoral and illegal? The great civil libertarian from the United States flies to Israel in order to figure out ways to repress them. That, that's, you know, that's his, as we say, that's his shtick. But let's be clear, it has nothing whatever to do with concern for Israelis. Norman, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I, I enjoyed your book, uh, and I really appreciated the fact that it was so thoroughly footnoted, and, or I should say endnoted, uh, throughout the book. And uh, there are two segments of this book I just want to point out to everybody, that there is the segment on the abuse of anti-Semitism, and then there's a segment on uh, using Dershowitz as an example on revealing uh, what uh, Norman believes is, and through his documentation, it seems to support uh, his view of Israeli history. And, and I think that uh, they, it can almost be read as two separate books, and it, the, both sections are uh, very interesting. And the end, at the very end of the book, where you compare what the myth about Israeli history is to what history's documents say it is, uh, I think it's just I think it's one of the most fascinating things I've seen as far as uh, concerning the history of Israel. I really appreciate you being on the show this well, morning. Well, you know what? Allow me to say I really appreciate you having me. I thought you were an excellent interviewer. The questions were not generic. They showed thought, and I appreciate it. And my last words to you are, I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, hey, Norman, uh, by the way, thanks for all the hate mail I'm going to get. I really appreciate it. God, had I known you were a Holocaust denier, I would have never had you on the show. You should, no, I'm not just a Holocaust denier. I think my mother was a Nazi collaborator. Oh, <laughs> well, see, another reason I shouldn't have had you on the show. All right, Norman, I really okay. appreciate you being on. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, that was Chuck speaking with activist and scholar Norman Finkelstein in 2005. That was an excellent interview. Chuck interviewed Dr. Finkelstein again in 2015. So as we just heard in the first interview in 2005, the state of Israel had withdrawn settlements from Gaza. 
but things weren't easy for Gazans. They still had to deal with a naval blockade. They couldn't move about freely. And in the intervening years, witnessed frequent Israeli military offensives. A 22-day offensive in 2008 that killed 1,400 Palestinians, and another in 2014 that killed 2,100. By the time Chuck and Norman spoke again, apartheid punctuations of violence every few years uh, had become a matter of public policy for the Israeli state. So let's listen to how that happened. Let's listen to Norman speaking with Chuck 10 years later in 2015, and they'll discuss the internal politics of Israel uh, that allow for these massacres. This is hell. Norman Finkelstein is author of Method and Madness, the hidden story of Israel's assaults on Gaza. Norman teaches at Sakarya University's Center for Middle Eastern Studies in Turkey. Good morning, Norman. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you back on the show, sir. We had you on several years ago, and it was such an enjoyable interview, and I was so glad that you had it transcribed and posted at your website, so I truly appreciate that. And the reason that I wanted to have you on the show is, you know, it, this you're absolutely right. It just looks like madness the way that the Israeli military attacks Gaza, but as you point out, there is a method to it. Before we get to that, I have to ask you something about a breaking story here at Northwestern University uh, and around the world, kind of. This this week, Northwestern University students uh, voted to join the BDS campaign, boycott, divest, and sanctions against Israel's occupation of Palestinian line. It was also, uh, land. It was also reported this week that APAC was trying to get language put into the Trans-Pacific Partnership that would make the BDS campaign illegal. How much does the BDS campaign mean for Palestinians? And if it was illegal, how much would that hurt the solidarity movement with the Palestinians? Uh, there's no question that these are uh, positive developments, and uh, the people who have campaigned uh, deserve a large amount of credit for keeping the Palestine cause alive and for demonstrating real organizing skills. Um, um, I would register just a couple of reservations on how you characterize these events. Um, Bear in mind, the reservations are within the larger context of these being important victories and uh, impressive victories. Uh, the first reservation I would register is uh, I do not consider these uh, BDS victories. BDS has a very specific political platform. It calls for an end to the occupation, equal rights for Palestinians within Israel and uh, implementation of what's called the right of return, that is the right of refugees who were Palestinians who were expelled in 1948 and 1967, the right to return, as well as succeeding generations of Palestinian refugees. Um, the uh, victories to which you refer at Northwestern, and there was also a series in uh, California, uh, the these BD, what you call BDS victories uh, are very specifically targeted uh, to Israeli human rights violations in the occupied Palestinian territories. Um, they don't speak to a large number of issues uh, which are included in the BDS platform, 
and all of these victories are always within the context of recognizing Israel as a state, uh, which BDS refuses to do. So I would characterize these as victories for uh, opposing um, Israeli violations of international law, uh, in particular Israel's illegal, at this point, illegal occupation of the Palestinian territories. But I wouldn't characterize them as BDS victories insofar as they do not uh, endorse the BDS platform. So is uh, is I'm sorry is the BDS campaign then is do you think it's more about creating solidarity it's more about something about politics here within the United States and the campaigners themselves than it is about having a direct impact on the ground within Israel or the Palestinian territories Well uh for the Palestinian struggle to succeed it clearly is going to need international support if Palestinians are, if Israel's left alone to do as it pleases, uh, the imbalance in uh, sheer physical um, uh, power is uh, such that the Palestinians couldn't possibly succeed. So the solidarity movement is a critical part of um, any possible positive outcome to the conflict. On the other hand, we have to be realistic about these things. Uh, just as in the American South or in South Africa or anywhere else for that matter, uh, the prime mover of any struggle has to be the people themselves. A solidarity movement can uh, can um, play a critical role, but it's always going to be a secondary role. Uh, the uh, primary role has to be played by the Palestinians themselves. And so far, uh, Palestinians haven't yet shown the kinds of uh, organization and uh, commitment required to end the occupation. All right, so let's get to your book, Norman. Again, the name of your book, Method and Madness, The Hidden Story of Israel's Assaults on Gaza. Gaza has experienced three invasions by Israel since 2008 that have killed a total of approximately 3,700 Palestinians, while 90 Israelis have died. After the 2008-2009 Operation Cast Lead invasion, Israel's then Foreign Minister Tzipi Livni said, is, quote, Israel demonstrated real hooliganism during the course of the recent operation, which I demanded. Why does Israel want to give the impression that their operations against Gaza are, by, nef- by definition of hooliganism, uh, rowdy, violent, disruptive, destructive, or unlawful behavior such as rioting, bullying, and vandalism? Well, when Tzipi Livni made that remark, which was in 2009, shortly after Israel's operation cast lead, actually she said it the night after cast lead, uh, ended. I think it was January 18th, if my, if my memory is correct. Uh, at that point, Israel was still experiencing a large amount of diplomatic and legal immunity for its crimes. And so there was a certain amount of bravado, one might say brazenness, in the ways Israel publicly acknowledged uh, the kinds of brutality it was inflicting on the people of Gaza. But Operation Cast Lead was a kind of turning point uh, because international outrage had reached a threshold such that 
a lot of international public opinion simply wasn't willing to tolerate Israel's periodic massacres. And the climax of that um, intolerance uh, was the Goldstone Report, uh, headed by, uh, it was a report issued by the Human Rights Council in the UN, uh, and headed by a distinguished South African Jewish jurist, Richard Goldstone. Uh, and at that point, it became clear to Israel that it was uh, now in uh, new, uh, new territory uh, where it couldn't carry on with the kind of brazenness that hitherto characterized it. Now, as it happened, uh, Israel was able to squelch the Goldstone Report, and it carried out uh, two more massacres, one in November 2012 and then this past summer. Uh, there were some differences, however. Uh, one noticeable difference was that the kinds of statements that Israel made after t uh, during and after caste led, it didn't carry on that way during Operation Protective Edge this past summer. They were much more cautious in what they were saying publicly because they realized that this time around they were going to be held uh, uh, politically and perhaps legally accountable for their actions. You mentioned the Goldstone Report. Uh, you write, the Goldstone Report found that much of the death and destruction Israel inflicted on Gaza's civilian population and infrastructure was premeditated. The assault was said to be anchored in a military doctrine that, quote, views dis disproportionate destruction and creating maximum disruption in the lives of many people as a legitimate means to achieve military and political goals and was designed to have inevitably dire consequences on the non-combatants in Gaza. The disproportionate destruction and violence against hum uh, civilians were part of a deliberate policy, as were the humiliation and dehumanization of the Palestinian population. These are all quotes from the Goldstone Report itself. Although Israel justified its assault on grounds of self-defense against Hamas rocket attacks, the Goldstone Report pointed to a different motive. But in 2010, as you point out in your book, Goldstone then takes back his finding, writing in the Washington Post, the allegations of intentionality by Israel were based on the deaths of and injuries to civilians in situations where our fact-finding mission had no evidence on which to draw any other reasonable conclusion. While the investigations published by the Israeli military uh, and recognized in the UN Committee's report have established the validity of some incidents that we investigated in cases involving individual so soldiers. They also indicate the civilians were not intentionally targeted as a matter of policy. Israel's lack of cooperation with our investigation meant that we were not able to corroborate how many Gazans, uh, Gazans killed were civilians and how many were combatants. So how much weight then does the Goldstone report still have? And in your opinion, why did Goldstone backtrack? Uh, the report has no weight whatsoever anymore. It's a historical document. It's a, it was a um, a uh, link in a chain of events uh, that began with Operation uh, Cast Lead, uh, and it proved to be a weak link. And uh, the the Goldstone report was effectively um, nullified or neutered. I think is the right word. Uh, I can't prove these things, but my guess is uh, the Israeli intelligence agencies got some uh, dirty information on Goldstone or a member of his family, uh, and he was blackmailed into um, writing that Washington Post op-ed. Uh, there's circumstantial evidence, which I go through 
in my analysis to support my speculation. But as the distinguished uh, South African jurist, uh, John Dugard, who is a colleague of Goldstone's, he said that it's probably a secret that will go uh, with Goldstone to his grave. Uh, one thing, however, we can say for certain, uh, Goldstone's pretext for his retraction was that new information became available since he wrote the report that contradic- contradicted uh, his findings. Uh, that's flat-out false. I go through all the alleged new information. Uh, there was no new information that contradicted his original findings. Uh, so we can say with certainty that his pretext was flat out, uh, a flat-out lie. And then you quote Goldstone saying, I'm not recanting my original report, which I still stand uh, stand by. You write, he must have known exactly how his words would be spun. And it is this fallout, not his parsed words, that we must now confront. Goldstone has done terrible damage to the cause of truth and justice and the rule of law. He has poisoned Jewish-Palestinian relations, undermined the courageous work of Israeli dissenters, and most unforgivably, increased the risk of another merciless IDF assault. There has been such speculation on why uh, Goldstone recanted. Was he blackmailed? Did he finally succumb to the relentless hate campaign directed against him? Did he decide to put his tribe ahead of truth? What can be said uh, with certainty is that Goldstone Goldstone did not reverse himself on account of newly unearthed information. So did this report in the end, did it do more harm or good in protecting civilian lives? Um, Well, I think it set a useful precedent. but it didn't fulfill its promise. Uh, as I said, even though Israel carried on even more crazed and um, <clears throat> depraved manner during Operation Protective Edge this past summer, uh, it was on a quantitatively uh, higher scale of death and destruction. In the case of Gaza, and during Operation Cast Lead in 2008 there were about 1,400 Palestinians killed, of whom about 1,200 were civilians. Um, in Operation Protective Edge this past summer, there were about 2,200 Palestinians killed, including 520 children, and about 1,500 or more uh, were civilians. So it was quantitatively a higher uh, level of death and destruction. The destruction was more severe at this, at this last round than in 2008-9. Um, so you can't say it did much in the way of limiting uh, the uh, magnitude of Israeli insanity, madness. Uh, but there were, as I said, some changes uh, I'm not saying they're positive or negative, they're just factual matters. Uh, This time around, Israel is much more cautious and less brazen in its public acknowledgement of its uh, lunatic policies. Uh, So a lot of people say that the Goldstone report should be dismissed or that the allegations inside of the report weren't true. How do you think, instead of that it wasn't true, how do you think that the Goldstone report fell short in telling people about the horrors that were happening within uh, the Gaza invasion? No, I think the report was pretty good. I was one of the first people to say that this is a surprisingly good report. Uh, There are things that I remember back then. 
I analyzed it very closely in the previous book. Uh, this time we went too far. Um, truth and Consequences of the Gaza Invasion. I analyzed the report quite closely, and there were some things I remember having prob- uh, reservations about, but in general it was a very good report. Uh, the problem was the fulfillment. Uh, it threatened the possibility of uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity pro- uh, prosecutions uh, against Israel in particular, some things against Hamas, but pretty, in my opinion, pretty trivial. But uh, certainly Israel uh, was facing the prospect, the dire prospect, that it was going to be held legally accountable for its criminal policies. Uh, that never happened. What's amazing is Israeli leaders bragged about doing exactly what Goldstone said they had done, indiscriminate punishment of a civilian population. You write Israeli leaders themselves did not shy away from acknowledging the indiscriminate, disproportionate nature of the attack they launched, uh, they, that they launched as the invasion wound down. Again, here you quote Foreign Minister Zippy Livni declared that it had restored Israel's deterrence. Hamas now understands that when you fire on Israel's citizens, it responds by going wild. And this is a good thing. The day after the ceasefire, Livni bragged on Israeli television. Israel demonstrated real hooliganism. A former Israeli defense official told the crisis group that, quote, with an armada of fighter planes attacking Gaza, Israel decided to play the role of a mad dog for the sake of future deterrence, while a former senior Israeli security official boasted to the crisis group that Israel had regained its deterrence because it has, quote, has shown Hamas, Iran, and the region that it can be as lunatic as any of them. Did Israeli media, did U.S. media notice this contradiction? Because I know that the U.S. media is hardly as critical of Israeli state policies as the Israeli media is at times. No, first of all, that uh, last statement is largely a misnomer. Uh, The problem is most people get their uh, insight into the Israeli media from Haaretz newspaper. Uh, The Haaretz newspaper is a liberal a liberal outpost in Israeli uh, media, and it's not at all representative of Israeli opinion, broad public opinion, or for that matter, uh, media uh, coverage. Uh, Israeli media, as there have been many studies done, marches lockstep with the government, uh, tolerates very little dissent, uh, and presents a picture of uh, Israel to its population, pretty much what you would expect in North Korea. Um, so I don't think it's correct to say that uh, Israeli media is more open than the American media. And at one point, that might have been true, uh, because the American media was like uh, Pravda Nezvestia during the era of Stalin, and uh, Israeli society was more to the left. Uh, but now Israeli society has moved as a whole as a whole, has moved radically to the right. There might be like 20% outpost of what you might call, uh, 20% margin of what you might call liberal opinion. But that's really about it. It feels a crazy state now. Uh, Its population is lunatic, and that's why it keeps re-electing this lunatic as its prime minister. The prime minister is uh, a perfect reflection of Israeli society. When Israelis see um, Benjamin Netanyahu, they see themselves uh, a loudmouth, obnoxious, arrogant, self-righteous, Jewish supremacist uh, uh, leader reflecting a loudmouth, obnoxious, 
self-righteous, arrogant, Jewish supremacist uh, population. They, they vote for him not so much for his politics, um, because uh, there's very little difference between the main political parties in Israel, and not unlike the U.S., on fundamental issues. Uh, they vote for him because they see themselves in him. You know, I was just about to ask you that, about uh, if there was much discrepancy between the different leading political parties, because an election is coming up next month. So I guess my my bigger question is, how could policy towards the Palestinians change if Benjamin Netanyahu is not reelected? Uh, nothing substantial will change. There will be, uh, if a new government comes to power, it's not going to uh, end the conflict on terms which are reasonable for the Palestinians. Um, we already know what their terms are. They want to annex the what's called the major settlement blocks, which means annexing critical Palestinian resources, including land and water, uh, and fragmenting the West Bank into, um, you might call them Indian reservations, uh, and also uh, nullifying the right of return of Palestinian refugees. Uh, that's the position of the so-called liberal opposition. Um, so it offers nothing to the Palestinians, and uh, there's no hope that anything the Palestinians will be able to extract anything uh, minimally acceptable uh, through uh, an electoral change in Israel. We are speaking with Norman Finkelstein. He is author of Method and Madness, the Hidden Story of Israel's Assaults on Gaza. Norman teaches at Sakarya University Center for Middle Eastern Studies in Turkey. Does the Israeli packaging, or like what Sippy Livni said about Israel demonstrated real hooliganism, does this packaging or marketing of the invasions as crazy as insane, does it work? Does it keep Gazans, Palestinians everywhere, Israelis in the West from seeing what you perceive as their real motives? Um, I think this this last round coming after two other assaults and the face of an illegal, immoral, and inhuman <clears throat> siege of Gaza, uh, this last round seems to have really knocked the wind uh, out of the people of Gaza and their fighting spirit, their willingness to resist, uh, I think has been significantly uh, undermined by the last Israeli assault. Uh, so at some at some level, yes, I would say the Israeli strategy of um, its blitzkrieg strategy of pulverizing Gaza, over uh, combined with the siege uh, of Gaza, uh, has been having certain amount of success. You write, Israel has repeatedly manufactured pretexts to achieve larger political objectives. Invariably, it resorted to military action against Hamas in order to provoke a violent response. Israel then exploited Hamas's retaliation to launch a series of murderous assaults on Gaza. We always hear, don't politicize the war here in the States and the media, and it really drives me crazy. Or politics gets in the way of the military. But But here you seem to be saying Israel's war on Gaza is a thoroughly politicized war, that it is about politics. Why do you believe this is about politics 
and not security, because the way in which any violence between Gaza and Israel is covered here in the U.S. is very balanced, as in both sides are equally at fault. Both sides can point to events that cause the current violence with footage of Israeli civilians running to bomb shelters and, well, little to no uh, footage of what's happening in Gaza, which doesn't have bomb shelters. So why do you believe this is about politics, not security? Well, all you have to do is look at the historic records. So let's take the case of the last three Israeli assaults on Gaza. Uh, in June 2008, uh, Israel signed a ceasefire with the Palestinians uh, in Gaza, primarily Hamas. And um, as uh, Israeli terrorism center itself wrote, quote, Hamas was careful to maintain the ceasefire. Uh, the ceasefire was broken by Israel uh, on November 4th, which was election day in the United States when Obama was uh, fated to become the first African-American president. All the cameras were on the U.S. election, and then Israel broke the ceasefire. Uh, so it was Israel that instigated the first of the three rounds in um, 2008-9. In the case of the second round, Operation Pillar of Defense, in November 2012, um, the ceasefire was uh, between Israel and Hamas was broken, when Israel um, assassinated a leading Hamas official who, ironically enough, was responsible for the ceasefires negotiated with Israel and was in the process of negotiating another ceasefire when Israel assassinated him. Uh, in the case of 2014, uh, Israel began its assault on Hamas after Hamas and the Palestinian Authority formed a national consensus government, and the national consensus government upheld the terms for negotiations with Israel, uh, or reiterated the terms for negotiations with uh, for negotiations with the what's called the um, uh, quartet, namely the Soviet, the, uh, Russia, the United States, the European Union, and the United Nations. Um, and the terms were recognition of Israel, renunciation of violence, and um, respecting past agreements. Uh, now, the new national consensus government, including Hamas, uh, reiterated its support for those terms of negotiations. And it was at that point that the Prime Minister Netanyahu exploited the opportunity offered by the kidnapping of three Israeli teenagers uh, to launch in July, excuse me, to launch in June, Operation Brothers Keeper, which targeted Hamas, even though there was no evidence that the Hamas leadership had anything to do with the kidnapping. And even though Netanyahu knew from the get-go that the kids were killed, the three Israeli uh, teenagers were killed uh, almost immediately after they were kidnapped. Uh, still, he launched this operation, killed Palestinians, blew up Palestinian homes, arrested 500 Palestinians in the West Bank, mostly Hamas members. Uh, and the purpose was clearly designed to evoke a, uh, <clears throat> a violent reaction from Hamas. Uh, in order to give Israel a new pretext for attacking Hamas. 
Yeah, this is the most frightening part of your book. It seems like the uh, the more you work towards peace, then that's going to mean in the very near future war. So is fighting, or I shouldn't say fighting, is working on, is is the process of Gazans and Palestinians working on peace with the Israelis, is that bad for their security? Uh, it depends on what you mean by their security. Uh, Israel's security is uh, at a very high level at this point. Oh, and I, mean, I meant for the Palestinian security. If if they're, if them pursuing peace is bad for Palestinian security. Uh, okay, if who pursuing peace? Uh, the Palestinians, because I'm just afraid. It seems like every time that you, in your book, every time that there is an, it, it seems to be steps closer and closer to peace or some sort of negotiations or some sort of talks, that's when the Israeli Defense Forces attack. So it would seem, yeah. it would seem, you know, hey, why pursue peace if you're going to be attacked by Israel? Well, I don't think it's a wise strategy, um, number one, to engage in diplomacy with Israel because I think that's a dead end. But I also think that um, the Hamas armed resistance is also a dead end. I think the only thing that can work is mass nonviolent resistance uh, and the uh, uh, and completely uh, for the moment completely setting aside uh, any hope of gaining anything at the negotiating table because uh, that's not really in the cards right now. Uh, at some point, yes, you want to turn. Uh, resistance into diplomacy, but unless you've won something, so to speak, on the battlefield, you're not going to get anything uh, in the negotiating room. Uh, So right now, I think uh, it's pointless to pursue any uh, negotiations or demonstrate any quote-unquote reasonableness to the Israelis because uh, the Israelis want to preserve the status quo and a status quo which is good for them uh, and anything which uh, jeopardizes or threatens that status quo uh, they're going to try to squelch. You uh you know, obviously condone mass nonviolent resistance, and I think that is very, very admirable. And I think that the nonviolence resistance that uh, Gazans, the Palestinians were involved in in the past uh, was fantastic. But the problem with that is, is that here in the U.S., nonviolent resistance doesn't get that much play in the media. So that leads to two questions for me. Uh, two questions, Norman. One is, Um, Well, I guess it's just one question. How important is U.S. media, is the U.S. media coverage of the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, how important is that to moving towards peace in the Middle East? Because here in the United States, we're not telling people that Palestinians are involved in nonviolent resistance and then only report on any kind of violence that Palestinians are involved in. That's going to, to what degree is that going to undermine that nonviolent movement? Or, Or am I just overestimating the importance and impact of U.S. and the U.S. media? why I said earlier, I don't think the Palestinians on their own can achieve uh, any significant political results. They have to be the prime mover. Uh, But having said that, it's incredible the solidarity movement internationally has a critical role to play. uh, And it really has to, at some point, coordinate and synchronize with the Palestinians such that if 
they do undertake or initiate major a major nonviolent uh, resistance uh, that will be here in the uh, will be here in the uh, in the um, uh, West. Uh, will be here to publicize what they're doing, to clarify what the issues are, to explaining to a broad audience why the goals set by this nonviolent resistance are legitimate uh, and indeed legal under international law, why Israel's occupation is illegitimate and illegal, uh, why justice is on the side of the Palestinians and injustice on the side of Israel. Uh, we have to do our job. Uh, it's a big job, but I don't think it's an insurmountable one. Um, there is a formidable uh, solidarity movement in the West, uh, which if it organized and gave its all, and I think it can organize and has quite a lot of all to give, uh, if you get everything right, uh, I think it's quite possible you can uh, effect major dents uh, in the media coverage of the Israel-Palestine conflict and enable the broad public to get a pretty clear picture of what's happening. You know, earlier on this morning's show, we were talking to Dalar Derek. She is a Kurdish activist. She is in the Rojava area. And she was talking, uh, she wrote an article at Al Jazeera about the glamorization of the Kurdish woman fighter and how that distracts the media from the politics of the of Kurdistan, of, of the group that is in Rojava uh, fighting against the Islamic State. And that just, when you were uh, just talking about um, the media and how it covers, uh, you know, um, what's going on in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And I started thinking, if, I wonder if our media is distracted by the security aspect rather than focusing on the uh, on that conflict's political aims, but all conflict's uh, political aims. Do you think media in general focuses on military rather than political aims? Oh, I think it all depends. You can't make generalizations like that. Um, it depends on <clears throat> which conflict you're looking at. Uh, in conflicts where the U.S., wants to pretend it's in the right or may in fact even be in the right, um, there is a focus on the political issues uh, at stake, not just on the military side. Uh, if you look at places like, uh, right now, places like Ukraine or Syria or elsewhere, or Syria, no, I would say Syria doesn't fit in that category, but in places like uh, Ukraine, there is a focus on uh, the political dimension uh, to what's happening. Um, so I don't think the problem is a focus on military versus political, military versus the political dimension. Uh, the problem is that the political dimension is uh, grossly distorted and uh, in many cases factually misrepresented. Uh, if you read any article in the Times, any mention of uh, Hamas is always followed by a subordinate clause, Hamas, comma, which wants to destroy Israel, uh, even though Hamas has made a thousand statements uh, saying that it's willing to accept a state on the 1967 border. Uh, that's always just um, whited out. I think this is one of the, the least understood things about the Israeli-Palestinian violence. You write, Palestinians are under neither legal nor moral obligation to desist from using armed force against Israel. Legal nor moral obligation. For those who may not know this, Norman, why is there no legal or moral obligation for the Palestinians to stop using armed force against Israel? Well, 
consensus under the current consensus under international law is <laughs> that people under occupation have the right to use armed force uh, in order to end the occupation. Uh, and contrarywise, uh, occupying an occupying force does not have the right to use uh, violence or arms in order to repress the struggle for uh, self-determination uh, and national liberation. Uh, that's the law. Uh, and I don't think there's really all that much controversy about it. You write, although Israel had uh, always coveted Gaza, its stubborn resistance eventually caused the occupier to sour on the Strip in April 2004. Prime Minister Ariel Sharon announced that Israel would disengage from Gaza, and by September 2005, both Israeli troops and Jewish settlers had been pulled out. It would relieve international pressure on Israel and consequently freeze the political process, a a close advisor to Sharon explained, laying out the rationale behind the disengagement. Quote, And when you freeze that process, you prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state. Harvard political scientist Sarah Roy observed that with the disengagement from Gaza, the Sharon government was clearly seeking to preclude any return to political negotiations while preserving and deepening its hold on Palestine. Israel subsequently uh, declared that it was no longer the occupying power in Gaza. So why didn't Israel keep that status quo? Why didn't they keep that front? Disengage, still control, claim you're not occupying, get better press, and do nothing to the change the situation and move on. That's exactly what it did do. It uh, sought to consolidate the occupation of the West Bank, and it uh, turned the screws on Gaza, but maintained the the pretense that uh, Gaza was now no longer under occupation. So this is something that they still hold this opinion. I thought that this would have changed from April 2004, September 2005, seeing as how there have been so many invasions. It's amazing that anybody would still believe that. How has Hamas, this is another aspect I think that people don't understand. I'm not sure if I can continue, sir, because it's 125, and I think you said it would be a half hour. Oh, okay, sure. I got one last question for you then, Norman. Uh, we've been speaking with Norman Finkelstein. He is the author of Method and Madness, the hidden story of Israel's assaults on Gaza. Norman teaches at Sakarya University Center for Middle Eastern Studies in Turkey. So my last question for you is, uh, I don't want to ask the Hamas question. That's kind of a silly one. Um, how much do you think the reason we have things like the Islamic State or that Iran has a style of government the U.S. does not support, how much of that is because of the American style of democracy failed the people of the Middle East? Um, I'm not sure how much the American style of democracy failed the people of the Middle East. First of all, uh, the U.S. style of democracy is no great shakes to begin with. Uh, uh, I would say it's marginally an improvement over what goes on in places like uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and other U.S. allies, probably better. Um, but that's never been imported into that region. Quite the contrary, the U.S. has always been very firm, steadfast, and forthright in its support of the Arab dictatorships. I think the very last thing they would want is um, a democracy, even a very limited 
one, such as we have in the United States, uh, take root in the Middle East, um, because for it to take root, all of the U.S. allies would be quickly and expeditiously removed from power, and popular governments, responsive, more or less responsive to the population, uh, would uh, then take their place, which the U.S. doesn't want. Uh, the U.S. doesn't want governments responsive to their populations. The U.S. wants governments responsive to the United States to be in power. Norman, I really appreciate you being back on our show. Uh, good luck with your book, Method and Madness, The Hidden Story of Israel's Assaults on Gaza, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Okay. That was Chuck speaking with Norman Norman Finkelstein in 2015 about the depressing and inexcusable cycle of Israeli aggression in Gaza, a cycle in which the United States government is wholly implicated and complicit. It was a good interview to hear in light of the fact that the Israeli army bombed Gaza again last Friday, an act of aggression which has left 46 Palestinians dead. All right, that's some news from hell. Let's turn to this week's question from hell. As you'll recall, this week's question from hell is, what ego trip are you going on that could trigger World War III? Over Twitter way, hypocrite, hypocrite R says, going back in time to kill a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Sure hope I don't accidentally step on a butterfly. Kind of a time travel cliche. David T says, raiding Mar-a-Lago which is a reference to recent events. The FBI raided Mar-a-Lago. Trump's a golf thing. It's fun. Peter G says, going all in on defense stocks. Well, that's probably always a winning bet, but I'm sure I don't have to tell you a moral nightmare. And that's about all the response we've had to this week's question from hell since yesterday. That's okay. Other funny answers this week were Borky B saying Rum Springer, Kim G saying pushing all the buttons, and Paolo S saying mine is more of a comment than a question, which I read as sort of putting the question from hell itself on blast, which rebelliousness of spirit I certainly appreciate. But yeah, I like Hypocrite R's time travel cliche one. I'm awarding it this week's finest honor, some free swag. Hypocrite, reach out to us via email, either at chuckatthisishell.com or DM us on Twitter. Let us know what merchandise from this is hell from the thisishell.com store you'd like to claim. All right. That about wraps it up for this week's show. Chuck will be back from vacation next week, and we'll start pumping out new interviews. I'm looking forward to that. Incidentally, if you appreciate the work that Chuck does to put these things out, his measured tone, the research, and open mind he brings to each in-depth interview, head on over to patreon.com slash thisishell and become a patron. That way we can keep this going for another 26 years. All right. This has been Board Operator Dan. I'll be here next week. Same time, same bat time, same bat channel. Until then. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, 
visit thisishell.com.